everyone. I had to uh, drop off a screaming child in the nursery, and so it's taken me a little bit to get into worship this morning, as you parents would know out there. So if I feel a little scattered, that's why. But apparently, I got a text message. He's doing okay now. So here we go. All right. We are in our last Sunday of our Jeremiah series, which is just crazy to me. The the fall has just flown by. Um, And next week, we're already jumping into Advent. So what I want to do today... um, is wrap up what I feel is the main climax of Jeremiah, the, f- the focus where God ultimately, through all these prophecies, is taking us, is, was taking Israel as well. Last week, we talked about him as the God of new beginnings, if you'll remember. This week, he's the God of future hope. That's where we're orienting ourselves this morning. Now, the passage for this morning isn't very long, uh, but I'm going to be throwing a lot of Bible at you today. Because it's the last Sunday where we get to really sit in some of these wonderful prophetic treasures, of course, until maybe next year when we do Ezekiel or Isaiah or some other prophet guru, who knows. But it's for the purposes of setting us up well for the Advent series, because what Advent does is, is it enters us into this longing for Jesus Christ, right? And so if what we're looking at today is prophetic hope, hopeful expectation, that's going to set us up very well for our Advent series, hopefully. There's... There's a section in the book of Jeremiah, chapters 30 to 33, that a lot of scholars call the book of comfort or the book of consolation, because it's a section where after a series, after pages of of prophetic warnings and judgment, God gives us a glimpse of what his plan is after exile. So if you've been reading through the book of Jeremiah and are growing a little bit weary, I give you full permission to just, you know, read chapters 30 to 33, and then skim the rest, because next week we're moving on anyways. So, But before we touch on these verses, I, I just want to give you a little bit of the context of what came before these verses, so that we can have some context in our minds and not immediately jump to conclusions. And if you want, if you've got a Bible, you can already turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, okay? Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to be looking at verses later on, um, but what I want to do is draw your attention to the first chapter, or the first verse in chapter 31, where we read these words, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, these words show up quite a lot This exact phrase shows up quite a lot in the Old Testament, and so we need to pay attention whenever we see it. We have to understand that whenever God says these words, this this phrase, whenever he uses this phrase, it's a reiteration of what the covenant was all about. You see, this is is the kind of thing that happens a lot in the Old Testament. It's it's language that's used, but the implications go so much deeper than the actual words. Think of when Ruth says to Naomi, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me right? That's not just some sort of pithy statement that she's saying. She's covenanting herself to Naomi. She's literally making an agreement, a treaty with her by saying those words. It was the cultural jargon of the day. Sort of like when we say to somebody, you know, break a leg. For someone for whom English is a second language, they might kind of go, excuse me? (laughs) But of course, what we're saying is, I hope the best for you. Good luck, right? We need to understand the context, Probably a better example is when somebody asks you to be a guardian for their kids. That's not just your name being put on a piece of paper or them asking you to guard and protect them when they are in trouble. 
No, that's, that's you agreeing, in other words, covenanting, to actually adopting these children into your own home if something should happen to their parents, right? So in that context, the, the implications of the word, the implications of the phrase, means so much more than just the words themselves. So when God makes that statement early on in Jeremiah 31, he's not just saying something nice to, you know, get on a Hallmark card. He's making a covenant statement. He's making a covenant statement, a forever statement, a a this is what it's all about statement. I will be your God and you will be my people. And in many cases, he also adds, and I will dwell among you. I will be your God. You will be my people and I will dwell among you. That was the end goal of the covenant that he had with Israel. That was what the whole point of it was. They were supposed to be his people by following the ways that he had set out for them, by doing sacrifices, by having festivals, obeying Sabbaths, having proper treatment of women, children, slaves, mercy and justice, a care for the least of these. This is what would identify them as God's people. They would look like him. As we've talked about in previous weeks, they would look like him. They would, they would uh, show his values. And in so doing, they would demonstrate that they were in relationship with him. But to be in relationship with the holy God was a bit complicated because of this whole issue of sin. The covenant had to take into consideration the holiness of God and the depth of the people's sin in light of that holiness. In comparison to that holiness, the the two ne'er could meet, in other words, unless there was some sort of mediation. There had to be some sort of in-between, a go-between. For these two parties to be united in identity, in a covenant, bond, it required a constant act of reconciliation. They constantly had to be reconciling themselves to God. It required... Sacrifices. It required sacrifices constantly being performed by the priests. It was the only way that they could approach a holy God. Is my microphone okay? Yeah? We're we're okay? Okay. It was the only way that they could approach, it was the only way that a, a pathway to God was available to them, okay? So you have to imagine, here I am in my sinful state, there's God in his holiness. I need to somehow get to God to be his people and him to be my God and for him to sort of dwell with me. There has to be some sort of mediation because I in my sinfulness can't approach him. And so that's where the sacrificial system came in. That was the mediation that was done so that this relationship could happen, okay? That was how it worked. That was the whole point. Because God wanted to be their God. He wanted them to be his people, and he wanted to dwell among them. That is, this was the only way to do it, okay? This was the only way to do it. That is, until he started talking about a new covenant, so with that, with that brief context in mind, let's now read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. The words will also be up on the screen. Well, we're starting at verse 31. Chapter 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the word of the Lord. Did you just read that? Did you see that? What's going on? That is totally, totally huge. This is huge. There's, there's a new covenant coming. Cool. But it looks totally different than the first one. How is this even possible? You can't write a new covenant when the old one is still in existence. What's going on? Well, look at what the writer of Hebrews actually says about this. In Hebrews 8 verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. In other words, he or she is saying, there was something wrong with the first covenant, right? If there was nothing wrong, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. And then the writer of Hebrews actually quotes these verses in Jeremiah. See, a new covenant is only possible and necessary because the old one has become obsolete obsolete, outdated, old-fashioned, unable to be used or is no longer useful or functional. Israel, as has been made very clear to us in the book of Jeremiah, broke the covenant. It's broken. (laughs) It's broken, faulty. You can't use it anymore. It's not useful. So God's making a new one. He's drafting up the paperwork, setting up, you know, setting up the terms and conditions, writing down the stipulations, and it looks something like this. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. God will imprint his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That's it. That's it. God will imprint his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Okay, note the language that is here. A new covenant needs to be written, okay? It needs to be written, one that gives the people of God, God's law, not written down on paper, note, not written down on stones of tablet or tablets of stone, as was in the case with Israel. Remember, back at the, with Moses on Mount Sinai, he came down with the two stone tablets that were then placed in the Ark of the Covenant, We're not talking about writing anything down on paper or on stone with endless pages of endless stipulations in order to help make sure that holiness is kept. Instead, it's written now on human minds and hearts. In other words, we now become the carriers of God's law. No pressure. We now become the carriers, the instruments of God's covenant. We carry his law like the ark that had the stone tablets within it. This is what enables us now to be his people and him to be our God and him to dwell among us. This, if it hasn't already been made clear, is totally different. 
totally different. It's a totally different way, actually, of, of even thinking religiously, if I can use that term. It's a totally different way about thinking about religion, about any kind of a relationship with a God. But the goal is the same. The goal is the same. Because right after this statement, we have those precious words again at the end of verse 33. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's sort of like God's stamp on saying this is a covenant. It's the same covenant, but it's different. It's different, but the end goal is the same. This is the new covenant. This is, gonna, this is how it's going to work. And this is what will be the result. We get that literally in just these three verses. This is the new covenant. This is how it will work. This is what the result will be. And this is only possible, as we find out, because he will enable the whole sin factor to be dealt with, which was the primary issue before. The new covenant is no longer about dealing with people's sin, in other words, on a regular basis. Those sacrifices won't need to be made anymore to atone for the people's sin because verse 34, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. They'll just be forgiven and forgotten. As the writer of Hebrews puts it also, and where these, the people's sins, have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Where there's forgiveness, in other words, guilt of sin and atonement for sin is no longer necessary. You don't need to have that guilt. You don't need to atone for your sin. It's no longer necessary. But how is this even possible? You can't just change the rules, God. If sacrifice for sins mattered for before, you can't just eliminate that part of the process. That's inconsistent and, frankly, bad storytelling. You can't just change the rules. But here's the thing. He doesn't just do away with it. He deals with it. Later on in chapter 32, God explains through Jeremiah that the cup of his wrath has to be poured out. Consequences need to happen. That they've already been delayed too long. The people's sin needs to be dealt with. But then chapter 33 is all about this promise of restoration, of, of health and healing, peace and security, rebuilding and cleansing and forgiveness. I will forgive their sins. Forgiveness. The people will bring God renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things he does for it. And after this beautiful phrase, we get again those words about a righteous branch sprouting. We, we had those words last week in the passage last week. A righteous branch will sprout. A new king will come into play who will be God himself. We talked about that last week. And then in verses 17 to 18, for this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel, nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to present sacrifices. Wait, so, so this new king is going to be a righteous king, and in the line of David, somehow also God, which we talked about last week. That all makes sense, sure. But he will also be a, a priest, 
an intercessor who is able to take care of the whole sacrificial part. Folks, this is the climax of what the whole Old Testament is pointing towards. If you've never understood what the point of the Old Testament is, please open up your ears because this is what it's all about. Whenever you hear Old Testament, okay, think Old Covenant. That's perhaps actually a, a better way to think about it. Not that they, the scholars messed it up, but I'm just saying, it's, think, when you think Old Testament, think Old Covenant. And when you think New Testament, think New Covenant, okay? Old Testament, Old Covenant. That's probably more helpful. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, points us constantly to a shepherd king, a king who is going to come onto the scene that's going to be the fulfillment of all that this Old Covenant sought to achieve, all that it was about, all that Israel did and all that they were trying to do. Somehow this king is going to fulfill all of that, a king who is also God, who is in the business of new creation, of new beginnings, who searches for his lost sheep, who, who reaches out to the least of these, who blesses those who mourn, who, who turns suffering into rejoicing. But most of all, this is going to be a king who intercedes for the world by laying himself down on the altar as a once and for all sacrifice, closing the deal on the old covenant and opening up the new. This whole language of new covenant starts and ends in Jeremiah. You actually don't hear any more about a new covenant after this until in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, Jesus is sitting around a table with his closest friends and he lifts up the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is starting right now. Right now. And we, as I said before, are now the carriers of this new covenant, but only because we have been given the spirit of this sacrificial lamb now within us. He dwells not in man-made temples or buildings anymore, but within the hearts and minds of his people by his spirit. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell among them. That is what the whole Bible is pointing us towards, which even now we only see in part, but one day we will experience in full. They will be my God. I will be their people. Nope, I will be their God. They will be my people. And I will dwell among them. The end goal is still the same, but the pathway for getting there is totally different. Totally different. New wine needs new wineskins. As one scholar put it, the old Mosaic covenant simply wasn't flexible enough to handle the new age of God's grace. This covenant is all about wearing the sacrifice of Christ, not of our own sin. We don't wear our sins anymore. 
We wear his sacrifice. It's a covenant based on a self-giving, sacrificial lamb. That's the deal. That's the deal. And we aren't tasked now with doing anything other than simply believing that he would actually do this. And then living in light of that reality. Surrendering our lives to him as a response. But how do we do this? How do we do this? It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to live it. How do we surrender to him in this waiting, in, in this in-between times when we, when we sort of experience it in part, but we're waiting yet to experience it in full? While we wander through our own wilderness experiences, wondering how this is meant to connect to our own circumstances, seemingly caught in an in-between, kind of as Israel was, between the realities of this hope that we've been given and yet the longing for the future fulfillment of it all. How do we, how do, we do this? What did God ask Jeremiah to do after he had received this incredible message of hope? Because at this point in Jeremiah's story, the Babylonian armies are literally at Jerusalem's doorstep. They're actually laying siege to it already. Their their armies are just covering the landscape, and Jeremiah is actually stuck in prison in the courts of Zedekiah. And God, in that context, tells him to buy a field. Buy a field. Yep, one of your cousins, says the Lord, is going to come asking you to redeem his field. And since you are the closest family member, you are to go ahead and buy it. Because that was the thing that, you know, ancient Israelites did. Verse, or chapter 32, 6 to 7. The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. So Jeremiah says in verse 9, I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. Which, when you think about this, it is utterly insane. Not just because it's super cheap, that's not the point. This is one of Jeremiah's family members from Anathoth, remember? Do we remember this? His family members from Anathoth tried to kill him. Okay, so this is a family member who actually was a part of a death plot against Jeremiah, but not even just that, he probably thinks he's getting a steal of a deal here, because this land's going to be taken over anyways. It's like buying an, a, a house on the ocean when you know that a tsunami's coming. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> What's the point? What's the point of buying a field when it's on the verge of being taken over by someone else? As Eugene Peterson put it, Jeremiah did what at the time appeared absolutely crazy. It was crazy because at at the very moment that he was buying the land, the Babylonian armies were camping on it. (laughs) Literally, the Babylonian armies were on the land. Why would you buy it? He himself, Jeremiah himself, was in prison with no prospects for getting out. The enemy was pounding the city walls and about to take the people off to exile. At that moment, 
Jeremiah bought a field on which he would never plant an olive tree, prune a grapevine, or build a house, a field that in all probability he would never even see. He would never even see it. But Jeremiah bought the field. He did it. He weighed out 17 shekels of silver, about 200 grams, so enough to, you know, buy a blade of grass in Langley, uh, and signed the deed. I'm not bitter. (laughs) Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Simply this. Because his actions demonstrated hope. Buying the field demonstrated a confidence that he had in God's promises, despite the circumstances around him, and it was a deliberate act of hope. He bought the field because he was convinced that the wilderness and the chaos that he and everyone else around him was experiencing would be used by God to eventually lead to a new beginning. That's what he had hope in. In other words, the field was an investment in God's future project. It was a deliberate act of hope. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, was once quoted as saying this, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Even if I knew that tomorrow the world was going to go to pieces, I would still plant an apple tree. Sometimes, Actions do speak louder than words. Not to say that our words don't matter, but sometimes actions do speak louder than words, particularly when it comes to expressing the hope that we have in times of chaos or despair. G.K. Chesterton once said, it is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. It's only when we're in seasons of hopelessness or in situations that feel hopeless that hope really becomes to be a thing at all for us. A kind of hope that isn't just wishing, but is deliberate action. I'm acting on this hope. I'm living into this hope. It's doing something. It's buying a field. Even when it seems impractical or without a clear end goal of success. Even when we can't see the fruit that may or may not come of it. Have you ever been criticized or critiqued, maybe by friends or family or colleagues, criticized or critiqued for doing something that you felt God was leading you to do, but were critiqued for it because it came off as irrational or impractical? Many of the most important decisions, when I really think about it in my life, were decisions that were made out of hope for what God was doing that had come from encouragement through prayers, prophetic words, whatever it was, but were incredibly impractical. But as we say, it was an act of faith. It was an act of stepping forward and trusting that God would fulfill his promises, that God would would respond to those prayers, that God would intervene in my life, even if I couldn't see the end of it or what the end result would be. 
See, sheer practicality, right? We're talking just utter practicality, the sort of drive that's grounded in the world's idea of success and in sort of an idolatrous race for possessions, the good life, success for our kids, retirement, whatever it is, whatever it is that that drives us to do very practical things so that we can have ABC come out in our lives, that will never actually offer us hope or release us from this relentless investing in temporary things. It really is relentless. In fact, that, that kind of practicality, although it's what everyone expects of us, it's how we're expected to live, it will actually only drive us into the ground. This past Tuesday, uh, Pastor Martin read in our staff devotional the words of Matthew 11 uh, in the message translation. And the first verse says this, Are you tired? And walk off. (laughs) Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? You know, I, I use these, you know, Old Covenant religion? For many of us, the answer to maybe one or more of these questions is yes! (laughs) Yes, I am! I'm tired. Of course I am. Look at the way I'm living my life, we say. I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of the busyness. I'm tired of not being able to find margin in my life. I'm tired of rushing to get things done. I'm tired of fill in the blank. I'm worn out from... Fill in the blank. I'm burned out on religion because. Fill in the blank. Folks, God's word for us today may be the exact same word that he gave to Jeremiah when he'd been promised a new promise but wasn't yet able to see that promise come to full fruition. What did he say to Jeremiah? Buy a field. Buy a field. In other words, invest in my promises. Invest in what I've told you. Stop worrying about your circumstances and the expectations that are on you. If the future looks daunting and you feel tired all the time, stop running around like a chicken with no head and no hope and buy a field. Buy a field. What does that even mean, you ask? Well, for Israel, Jeremiah's action demonstrated a hope that was yet to come for them in that land, in that context, and the new promises for God's people that would sort of begin to percolate over time, which we'll see a little bit more in our Advent series coming up. For us, perhaps buying a field is simply a call to live where we are in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, but to return to the well, to to drink deeply of our God, to regain a sense of where our living water comes from, and to rest in the assurance of his new covenant with us. 
to lean into that fulfillment of Christ's sacrifice and embrace that freedom that says we're, we're actually tasked with nothing, no, no terms and conditions, no moral codes, no performance expectations, other than simply receiving his grace and living in light of it. Wow, does life change when we live, as Peterson put it, in the unforced rhythms of grace. Perhaps for some of us, it means purging or getting rid of excess weight that's on top of us, whatever that is, responsibilities, tasks to be done, things that we've committed ourselves to. Maybe it's getting rid of some excess weight so that we can actually spend time exploring this field that we've been given, this new life that has been given to us. Maybe it means disciplining ourselves against wandering in and out of other people's fields, you know, worrying about what they have and what we don't. Simply maybe setting up boundaries for ourselves so that we can focus on what we've been offered. Maybe it means building something within the field, a garden or a pathway that allows us to more frequently take walks with our Lord and Savior. Whatever it is, whatever it is for you, buy a field. Buy a field. Invest in your future formation. Invest in this relationship. Dig deeply into the wells of God's goodness. Taste and see that Christ's mercy is enough. It's enough. It's not very practical, but it's enough. Buy into what you believe. Buy into what you believe. And then invite others into that space. God's grace is never something we just hoard to ourselves. I was, uh, a, a story was shared with me that just this past week, a couple days ago. Uh, Hank and Jenny Van Eyck, um, members here for many, many years. Jenny passed away a few weeks ago, and as Martin mentioned earlier, um, or Tamara mentioned it earlier, the service for Jenny was this past Saturday. Um, and Martin actually shared with me a little story of Hank and Jenny that back in the day when they would go camping, every time they went camping, they would take tulip bulbs with them. And whenever, wherever they would set up their tent, eventually, before they left, they would plant tulip bulbs in just random places around the campsite. And then if they went to another campsite, they would do the same. Before they left, they would just plant random tulip bulbs around the site. Something that they themselves would never see. They don't know. They didn't know if it would grow or if, you know, bears would come and eat them up. Like, they didn't know. But what they were doing was investing in the future joy of someone else. They were doing an, a deliberate act in a small way, but it was a deliberate act of hope, of joy, of, of living deeply into the wells of God's goodness and giving others just a taste of that goodness through the beauty of creation. As one writer put it, every person we meet must be drawn into that hope-filled expectation. Everyone we meet, in other words, must, must in some ways encounter a person who lives in hope. Every situation in which we find ourselves must be included in the kingdom that we are convinced God is bringing into being. 
right? Our whole lives, in other words, are defined by this future hope, this future hope of a future king who's going to build a new kingdom here in which we can all live and in which he will dwell with us in the most fullest way possible. That is our hope. It's a message that that we in the world constantly need to hear. This never gets old. Whether people want to hear the name Jesus or not, it, it doesn't matter. Sometimes his actions through us speak louder than words. And similar to how Jeremiah would have felt, slowing down, slowing our lives down to deepen this part of us, to deepen our hope, doesn't feel practical. Imagine how Jeremiah would have felt. It doesn't feel practical. Sometimes it doesn't even seem to make sense. Right? I, I can't afford to invest my time there. I don't have time. These other things are just too pressing on me. There's too many other people's expectations. Others are de- depending on me. I, I just can't afford it. I just can't do it right now. <laughs> just, just take 10 seconds <laughs> to imagine what we're missing out on. When we say things like that, just imagine what we're missing out on. And really, what kind of hope do we have if that hope doesn't impact us today? Invest in the future of Christ's kingdom now. Whatever that means for you. Buy stocks in his new covenant realities now, today. Invest in what gives you a taste of what is to come. Buy a field, whatever that looks like for you. And mark yourselves as a people who are defined by the hope to be found in Jesus Christ. An utterly unashamed and willing to put everything else on the line kind of hope. Because, friends, that kind of hope is the only hope that's practical enough to truly bless the world. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you continue to speak to us through your word, even today. That these words in Jeremiah, at times hard to receive, at times so rich and so unfathomable, Lord, still have the capacity to touch our hearts today. And we know, Lord, that that is only possible because of your spirit who dwells within us. Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would enliven us to these truths and to these realities Lord, that we would be a people who dig deeply into the goodness of your love, who invest our time and our resources, our hearts and our minds into this future hope that you've promised, into this new covenant that is built on the sacrifice of your son. Lord, we thank you for this hope. May we be a people who, at the drop of a hat, buy a field for your kingdom purposes. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.